Well, good morning. Everybody well today? I know everybody's awake, right? Now you're outside, man, that just, wow, right off the bat, right? Uh, gets you fired up. Hey, aren't you so grateful for our student ministry? And let me tell you what I'm grateful for, too. Not only them coming and serving today, I'll give you a chance to clap here in just a second. Um, not only for them coming and serving today, I'm thankful for a church that doesn't say, you know, you guys stay up there in your space, in your area, and you're the future of the church, but rather we're a church that says, no, you come on in with us because you are the church. Uh, and we get to enjoy that and, and learn from one another and worship together. But didn't they do a great job this morning? Now you can clap, right? Um, and see, they're not even in here right now. So they're, they're upstairs in Connect Group where they need to be. Uh, and, and had a great uh, time this past week with our senior adult banquet. Uh, for those of you that were there, and, and <laughs> so many were, uh, what an incredible time. Thank you for allowing us that opportunity to, to serve you. Uh, and don't forget to go online with that little QR code you got to look at all those pictures and everything. What, what an incredible time. And thank you so much for everyone else who uh, helped work and served during that also. You know, today is a special day in the life of our church. And this, uh, today is the 32nd anniversary of Northside uh, as a constituted church. And so uh, we remember that each year at this time. And uh, I know as I do, I am so thankful uh, for the rich history we have, for the strong legacy that Northside has had from, the, from day one of standing on God's word and being uh, a church uh, who seeks to live what we preach as well. And I, I believe it's that, 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 that legacy, that foundation we've been given that makes me as pastor so excited about the fruitful future that we have as a church also. But 32 years today. We're going to jump in this morning in our uh, reading plan because I'm short on time, right? And so to do so, we're going to dive right in. We find ourselves uh, in week 46 as we're walking through the New Testament together. Uh, so that will be your reading plan. Again, bookmarks still in the seat backs, still there on the app. Hit it. I've only got a few more weeks to say that. And I'm not sure how I'm going to start out the sermon series when we move into January. But I'm sure I'll figure something out, right? Uh, you'll hear something repeated then too. But that's where you're going to find yourself this week. And it's hard to believe we're already week 46. Like we're, we're almost there. Now, wherever you jumped in uh, along this journey with us, uh, we find ourselves there in our reading plan. We began, of course, in, in our Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. From there, then moving into the book of historicity, or our historical book uh, in Acts, where we see the, the, the foundation or certainly the empowerment of the local church. From there into our Pauline epistles. Remember, I just said epistles, fancy word for a letter, right? Those, those Pauline, the letters written by Paul. Uh, to individuals and churches. And those, of course, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. All I can do not to sing the song right now, right? Like I just got that in the back of my mind right now. Um, and then we moved into our, what are known as the general epistles. And the reason they're referred to as the general epistles or general letters is simply because they were to a general audience, not as specific as what we saw in Paul's letters. Those, of course, beginning Hebrews, James, 1st and 2nd Peter, where we find ourselves now, 1st, then 2nd and 3rd John, Jude, and where we'll be in just a couple weeks, Revelation, right? So, uh, so we find ourselves in the, within the general epistles uh, and in the letter of 1st John. 1st John was written by the same person who wrote the Gospel of John, that is the Apostle John, right? The son of Zebedee, right? Uh, that, that is who wrote this letter. And, and he's kind of unique because, like we said about Peter, he had a very close relationship with Jesus Christ during his ministry on earth. In fact, uh, both Peter and John, as well as James, 
not the half-brother of Jesus, but, but John's brother. Uh, Peter, James, and John were uh, considered kind of a part of the inner circle of Jesus' 12 disciples. Uh, they had kind of a special relationship, and, and they were not only some of his, his first disciples to be called as disciples, uh, but also they were present at some very special times uh, that are recorded throughout the Gospels. They were eyewitnesses to Jesus' transfiguration that we saw in Mark chapter 9. They, witnesses, they witnessed Jesus raising Jairus' daughter from the dead in Luke chapter 8. And it was also these three who were with him in the Garden of Gethsemane in Matthew chapter 26. So what we see out of this inner circle, if you will, was they were with Jesus in the best of times, and they were with Jesus in the worst of times. And nothing could be more true for, the, for John, uh, who, who was with Jesus even at the cross. In fact, as far as we know, he was the only disciple verified at the cross in the time of Jesus' crucifixion. And so we, we, we see this kind of personal relationship that John has. We see that played out in his writings. In the gospel of John, in his gospel account, uh, it was very different. It was not part of the synoptic Matthew, Mark, and Luke gospels. It was a separate gospel uh, because it had different, a different structure and timeline. But we see that personal relationship with Christ come out. In fact, he doesn't refer to himself uh, in, in his gospel, but he just repeatedly says, the one whom Jesus loved. When he's talking about himself, he's just saying, I, I just, the one that Jesus loved so dearly. And I think that was just reflective of how much love that John had for him. In fact, it was John who, uh, at that cross, when, when Jesus uh, looked down, seeing the, the hurt, the pain, the anguish of, of Mary. And do you remember? He looked to Mary and he said, here is your son, referring to John. And he looked to John and he said, here is your mother. Man, what a, a special bond that, that, that John had with Jesus Christ. It was also John uh, lived more than, longer than any of the other disciples. In fact, um, they tried to kill him once and it just didn't work out too well. They, uh, they sent him off to the island of Patmos, right? And so where, where he just remains there. But, uh, but he lived to a ripe old age in, in his 80s and likely into his 90s before he was finally martyred for the gospel. So he lived a far longer than any other. In fact, at the time of writing this, uh, 1 John, this letter, it was likely shortly following his gospel account of Jesus Christ, and he would have been well into his 80s at this point. And so in his gospel, where if you remember when we studied through the gospel of John, I said he was really painting a portrait of who Christ is. We get that Christology so well from him of, of understanding Jesus Christ and, and our relationship with him. And he kind of continues that theology. It kind of just flows into his letters that we see here in 1 John as well. Now, when I did my study, I was doing my reading just like you guys do and reading through 1 John, one thing jumped out to me. And just as I read through it, it kept popping up and popping up. And so I started highlighting it in my Bible. And what I found is there are 21 ifs in those five little chapters. It's a very short book. And yet 21 different times he uses that word if. If this, then that. Right? And so as I read through that, uh, early on in the week, I said, that's today's message. What if? That's the title of the message. That's what I'm going, and I spent the week kind of laying that out. And in fact, if you look at chapter, uh, chapter one, he says, God is light. And because of that, verse six, if we say we have fellowship with him, and yet we walk in darkness, we're lying. And the truth is not in us. Verse seven, if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son cleanses us from all our sin. Verse 8, if 
we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins. Verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and the word is not in us. All the way through, chapter 2, verse 3, this is how we know that we know him. This is how we know that we know him. If we keep his commands. Verse 15, do not love the world or the things of this world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Chapter 3, verse 17, if anyone has this world's goods and sees a fellow believer in need and withholds compassion from him, how does God's love reside in him? Chapter 4, if we love one another, God remains in us and his love is made complete in us. Verse 20, if anyone says, I love God, and yet he hates his brother or sister, he's a liar. Like you just Throughout all the pages, you just see this repeated over and over. If this, then that. And then what happened is I got to the, towards the end of the week, I got into my closing and, and in chapter 5. And what I noticed in chapter 5 is that there's another repeated statement in this closing uh, section of, of his letter, if you will, this closing paragraph. And so that's where I actually landed. So I say all these things, David, why did you share all that with us if you're not going to preach on it? Because you're going to read it this week, right? That's your commitment. And, and I want you to see how that plays out because that's really what John's doing. He's, he's reminding them, hey, if you'll live like this, then you'll receive these things. And if you live like that, then that you'll receive these things. And so there, there's that relationship of if this, then that, and you're going to see that played out. But where I want to land is in his closing of his first John chapter 5, and my title, instead of what if, the title is A Confident Christian. Let's read that this morning. First John chapter 5, beginning in verse 13, either in the app or you can turn in your Bibles. Chapter 5, beginning in verse 13. John writes, I have written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence we have before him. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we have asked of him. If anyone sees a fellow believer committing a sin that doesn't lead to death, he should ask, and God will give life to him. To those who commit sin that doesn't lead to death, there is sin that leads to death. I'm not saying he should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin. And there is sin that doesn't lead to death. Verse 18, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not sin. But the one who is born of God keeps him. And the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are of God. And the whole world is under the sway of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come. And has given us understanding so that we may know the true one. We are in the true one. That is, in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Verse 21, little children, guard yourselves from idols. Now, I want you to see, as I was playing that what if statement, and we see that kind of even, even pulling through to the end of chapter 5, but yet, as he's closing everything out, we see this, 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 this new thing presented over and over again. That word confidence, and we know this, and, and we know that, or so that we may know these truths. And so he opens up this letter, though. He says, these things. Now, let me let, 
to, to kind of frame that for us. When, when he opens up in that first statement, these things that we have written to you, right? He's referencing the rest of his letter, right? From chapter one and verse one, all the way to chapter five and verse 12. He's saying all of that, right? And so what he's doing now is he's kind of summing it up. Not today's uh, vernacular, we may say, uh, I said all that to say this. You ever been there? Like you're going through a lot of explanation for something, and finally you just drill it down. And you say, okay, the reason I said that was so that I could say this, right? Let's get to that closing argument or that main point. That's exactly what he's doing here. And he's saying that he's writing, look, to you who believe. Now, we don't know specifically who this is. That's why it's one of the general epistles, as I mentioned earlier. But what we know is this letter was being dispersed to churches. And specifically then, he says, to believers. And what had taken place was they had had all the different churches, different people kind of coming in. And though they were intelligent, they not, didn't necessarily have a solid theology. And they began to, to teach some things that caused the people to have doubts, to, to, to begin to question uh, some of the, the, uh, the arguments that the early church believed. And so that they had these, these doubts, these, these uncertainties now that no Christian should have. And as I was thinking through that, I thought, man, how pointy that is for today as well. Like, it seems like the church has been dealing with that from the beginning of time, doesn't it? I mean, everybody, we're just so uncertain about everything, right? Our world today just seems so uncertain, and yet that's not what God's Word tells us. Even, even Ben Franklin said, in this world, you can only be certain of two things, what? Death and taxes, right? And you can be certain of those, right? Um, but there are far more things as well. Did you know Muhammad said this, he did not know what would happen to him on the day of judgment. And yet people would follow that? Brother, if you don't know where you're going, <laughs> I'm not on that journey. As believers, we can know where we're going. And that's what John wants us to understand. And listen, I hear from believers all the time in counseling and talking to different people. And you'll ask that question, hey, are you confident in your salvation? And so many times, well, I hope so. Well, I, I think so. I, I'm just not confident. Well, I don't know. And, and what they're saying is, well, I just don't know if I've done enough. Or maybe in my past, I've done too much, right? And what John is reminding his readers and what he's telling us today as God speaks through, through him to us is that we can be confident. We can be confident in God. Our confidence can't be in ourselves. That's the problem. When, when I ask people that question, what they're saying is, well, I, are you confident in your salvation? Well, I, I don't know. I don't know if I've been good. I don't know if I've repented enough. I don't know if I'm really forgiven for those things. And our confidence is more inward than it is in God. Right? I heard a, a, a story, oh gosh, years ago. And it was these three college students. They, um, had gone to college together and uh, were, were majoring in the same things. So they spent a lot of time together, had a lot of similar classes, right? Um, and so because of that, uh, they had kind of built a, a kinship, right? And so one weekend they had decided, we're going to go away. The weather's really nice, nothing like what it is here today in Murfreesboro. And, but maybe just, what, 24 hours ago. But, uh, um, but we're going to go on a camping trip, right? And so, so they do that. They, they head out. They go to the last class on Friday spend the weekend just hiking and camping. The weather is perfect. The fishing is great. They are having the time of their lives. But the problem was they had a, an exam that they all three had to take on Monday morning, first thing, and they knew that. So they kept telling, they had told themselves before they left, listen, we'll go, we'll enjoy a couple days, you know, Friday, what we got left, and all of Saturday, and then we'll come back home early Sunday so we can study and cram for that exam we've got Monday morning. Well, the weather was just so good. 
you know, and they were having such a good time. And next thing you know, it's Sunday. And they didn't really want to leave yet. And so they, they stayed and they stayed. Eventually they said, you know, we have got to get back. By the time they drove back home, it's middle of the night. As they're unpacking, they said, you know, there's no way we can take this exam tomorrow. Right? I mean, they're, they're, well, we're, we're tired. We're exhausted. We can't study. We're not prepared for it. So they came up with a scheme. They said, here's what we'll do. As long as we all three agree, we'll, we'll tell our professor um, that, you know, we went away for the weekend to serve um, at, at an old folks' home, right? And we were there just serving the whole time and, and being with them. And, and, and we were having such a, a good time with them for the weekend. And then on our drive home for Monday, because we were already prepared for our exam, on our drive home, we got a flat tire and we missed the class. So they, they all agree, hey, this is a pretty good idea. Let's, let's run with that, all right? Uh, they get back home, and sure enough, Monday morning, after the class had already met, the exam was over, later that day, they went to the professor. All three told them the story. Hey, we were just, just serving some, some needy people the whole time and got a flat, and hey, is there any way we could take, get a makeup test? The professor says, after a lot of thought, you know what, I'll let you do it. He said, can y'all all three be back here first thing Monday morning, or excuse me, Tuesday morning, the next day, 8 a.m. They agreed. They went home. They crammed. They studied all night long. They show up back on Tuesday morning, 8 a.m., just like the professor said. When they arrive, he has three uh, exam booklets. You know the ones that are sealed? You got to break the seal to open them, right? Gives each one of them an exam. and says, now I want you to go to these three different classes that he had designated. And he said, when you get in there, you go ahead and open the seal, take the exam. You got 30 minutes. Shouldn't take that long. Well, they're all confident and, you know, everything's good. We've studied all night. They, they go to their classes. They break that seal, open it up. Question number one, worth five points. And, and it was a question they had all studied. They knew really well, so they all three eagerly answered that question. This is going to be great. It's going to be easy. Turn the page. Question number two, worth 95 points. It was only a two-question exam. And here was the question, which tire? See, they were confident. They had, that, they had him beat, right? We got this thing figured out. We, we've got this. What they didn't count on was there was a lot of wisdom in that old professor, right? Uh, beat them at their own game. Paul's kind of saying, you know, don't put confidence in yourself, but let your confidence be in the one who is wiser, who is wisest. Put your confidence in God. And too often we, we, we hold on to our, to our own knowledge, our own abilities, and, and that's just a losing battle for us. And, and it's frustrating to believers. But John reminds us our confidence is in God. And so there's five things I want to see pretty quickly, real quickly this morning. First one is this, you can be confident in eternal life. Look what he said in verse 13. I have written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. What? So that you may know that you have eternal life. Not so that you can hope for eternal life. John says, it's not something you hope for, but it's something you know. I know so. I, I know I'm saved. John says, listen, you can have that confidence that you are saved. Paul said, remember in 2 Corinthians 5, 8, he said, I am confident of this, that to be absent from this body or this tent is what, church? To be present with the Lord. Confident. We can know that we're saved through a relationship with Jesus Christ. You have eternal life. Do, do you see that? You may know that you have eternal life. Eternal life is not something you have to wait until you die and then receive. 
When you re receive the Holy Spirit, when you repent of your sins and trust Jesus as your Savior, at that moment, you receive eternal life. You have eternal life. And by the way, you can't lose it. Right? How do you lose something that's eternal? And I, I've always questioned that. People say, well, I believe you can lose your salvation. Do you believe it's eternal? Yeah. How do you lose something that's eternal? You can't, <laughs> right? And that's exactly what, what John's reminding us. Uh, Jesus said in John 10, 10, 28, John recording the words of Jesus, he said, I give them eternal life. And they will what, church? Never perish. And then he goes on. No one can ever snatch them from my hand. You can know that you have eternal life. But, but secondly, he tells us this. You can be confident that God hears your prayers. You can be confident. Look, look at verse 14. This is the confidence we have before him. If we ask, what church? Anything according to his will, he hears us. That, is that not unfathomable? The God of the universe hears your petty prayer. Are y'all like me? You ever get convicted when you're praying and knowing, having confidence that God's hearing your prayer? And I'm sometimes apologetic to God as I'm praying for something. I'm thinking, you know, God, this is so petty in your ears right now. I mean, he's simultaneously hearing prayers of people who are being persecuted overseas, uh, families who are losing a loved one. He, he, he's in the midst of hearing those prayers, and yet he still hears mine. We can be confident that he hears our prayers. He hears us. David wrote in Psalm 34, 15, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their cry. He hears you. Now, what does he hear? He hears when we pray according to his will. And how does that flesh out? Let's look at number three. You can be confident in answered prayers in his will. He goes on in verse 15. And if we know that he hears whatever we ask, we know that we have what we have asked of him. We know and are confident that our faith is secured. We understand that. Uh, we have eternal life. We can be confident in that. But the problem is, in the meantime, while we're still here on earth, we face all kinds of issues, don't we? Like, life's a mess. Life is tough. And so there are many things that we have to seek God's favor, seek God's direction and his discernment. If you look back in chapter 3 of First John, he wrote this in verse 21. Dear friends, in our hearts, don't condemn us. If our hearts don't condemn us, we have confidence before God if we trust in him and receive whatever we ask from him. Why? Because we keep his commands and do what is pleasing in his sight. Yes, God hears every prayer. And yes, God answers every prayer in his will. How do we do that? How do we know that? Right? I mean, it should be enough that God hears us. But it's not enough for God. He also answers when we're in his will. When we live according to his will, he, he says, when we, when we keep his commands and we do things that are pleasing in his sight, then we can not only pray and ask God, but we can know that he hears us and will give us what we ask. Now, sometimes we get a yes from God. He hears us, he answered us. Sometimes we get a no from God. He hears us. He answered us. And sometimes, and I think probably more difficult, we get a 
wait from God. He hears us and he's working through us, right? Sometimes it's yes, sometimes it's no, sometimes it's wait. And I know that John, undoubtedly, he, he was leaning into the words of Jesus from his own gospel, John 14, 14. Jesus said, if you ask me anything in my name, I'll do it. In 15, 7, if you remain in me and my word remains in you, ask whatever you want and it will be done for you. Right, chapter 15 and verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you. I appointed you to go and what? Produce fruit that your fruit would remain why? So that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. You see how he, he, Jesus lays this out for us? Listen, when we're in God's word, when we know God's word, when we're seeking his will, when we're seeking to be fruitful for his kingdom, when we're living as God has designed us to live, then we'll know his will. We'll pray his will and we'll see those prayers answered. I say this all the time. Listen, the more you know God's word, the more you'll know his will. What is God's will for my life? Dive into his word. What does God desire for this? Dive into his word. The more we know of his word, the more we understand his will. And we pray, listen church, to discover his will, not to change it. When we get on our knees and we pray, we're not trying to convince God to do something he doesn't already want to do. We're getting on our knees so that our hearts, our minds, our spirits can align with his will. And I know it's tough. And I know there's a lot of times we don't understand. Listen, I've been there. I've asked for things. I don't understand why I didn't get what I asked for. I don't. But the more I know about God, the more I understand. He's not a genie in a bottle. Hey, rub me and get three wishes. He's almighty God. I don't understand it. I don't even agree with it. But by faith, I believe in it. And I trust in his will. I didn't get what I wanted, but... What I've learned, and as time goes by, isn't it true that when we don't understand and we, when we got to know from God for something and we get mad because we treat him like Santa Claus, we just sit in his lap and tell him what we want. And man, if he doesn't give us what we want, he don't, he's not real, right? And yet, as time goes, we can see how God works his will, even through our nose and through tragedy. Well, fourthly, you can be confident that sin is defeated. Look at that verse 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not sin. But the one who is born of God keeps him. And the evil one does not touch him. Now, now let me explain this. That's not saying that if you get right with God, you'll never sin again. If, if you're saved, you won't sin. And if you do, well, you must, must have lost that salvation. Or you just weren't saved in the first place. It's not correct. It's not perfection he's dealing with here. It's correction. Right? Not perfection, but correction. What he's saying is, listen, you can be confident in this. There are two types of people in this world. There are the saved and there are the lost. And that's it. And you're either of God and have set your mind on the things of righteousness that he spoke of, or you're the devil. And likewise, you will set your mind on the things of this world. In Colossians chapter 3, chapter, uh, verses 1 through 3, he says this, So if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things from above where Christ is, where he is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ. And where Christ is, there, there, there is no room for sin. He's not, he's not saying that, that the believer will never sin, but, but he's reminding us that Christ is in us. 
In Paul's closing of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, he said this, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, working in your life and through your life, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept sound and blameless at the coming of our Lord Christ, who has called you. And he closes and he says this, He is faithful. He will do it. What he's saying is, as a believer, listen, you have the Holy Spirit in you. You, you have Christ above as your mediator to God, Almighty God. And he says, and his desire for you is that you won't sin. But understand this, if you do, greater is he that is in you than he who is in the world. That's 1 John chapter 4 and verse 4, just the previous chapter. What is in you in the spirit of Jesus Christ is greater. You can overcome any temptation. And when you don't, you repent. No temptation has seized you that is too great, but neither is any sin in your life too big for God. He, he says in verse 16 too, if anyone sees a fellow believer committing a sin that doesn't lead to death, he should ask, and God will give life to him, to those who commit sin that doesn't lead to death. But then he says this interesting, there is a sin that leads to death. What's he talking about in the midst of all this? Wait a minute. How does, is there, there, there some sin is deadly and some sin is not. No, all sin is. What's he saying? The unrepentant sin. See, when we go on playing a charade that, that I'm a believer and yet go on living a life of sin and yet never repent from our sin, John says that leads to death. That leads to an eternal separation from a holy God. Yet for every believer, if when you sin, we repent and ask him to forgive us, he is faithful and just, and he will forgive our every sin. That's what he's speaking about here. We looked at that last week, talking about uh, that, 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 that very thing for, for, from last week's message. If you are of God, you'll repent. Remember, repentance is just trusting him to forgive you, and he will. But the fifth thing he says here, too, you can be confident of this. You can be confident that Jesus is the Messiah. Look at verse 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know the true one. We are in the true one, that is, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God, and he is eternal life. He says, listen, you can have confidence in this. Jesus is who he said he is, and he is able to do anything in and through your life. He is the Messiah. He opened his letter so well in 1 John chapter 1, first four verses. He said, what was from the beginning? What we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have observed and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, which is Jesus Christ. That life was revealed and we have seen it and we testify and declare it to you, the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. What we have seen and heard, we also now declare to you so that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Verse 4, and we write these things so that our joy may be complete. John said this, I don't understand it, but God chose to reveal his Son, the Messiah to us, and he is all he was built to be. 
Here all these Jews are, all these promises of the Messiah, all the, the, the times of them worshiping and sacrificing, waiting for the Messiah to come. And John says, and he did, and he's Jesus. And friends, he is your Messiah too. You, us Gentiles, we have the power of the Messiah, the Son of God to dwell in us. You can be confident that Jesus is who he said he is. And you can be confident that he can overcome anything in your life. Well, he closes with a final thought in verse 21. He says this, little children, guard yourselves from idols. Now, isn't that kind of a strange closing? I was reading that, it's almost like, you're not writing a kid's book here. That's some pretty deep theology you were getting into. And then to close out little children, right? But remember, uh, his age at the time, he, he, he was 80 plus years old, right? Uh, so certainly, to most people in the church, they were little children compared to him. They just didn't live that long, right? But here in this closing, there are two things that jump out, and, that, and that's what I'll close with. First of all, he reminds us about idols. Remember, idols are anything that we place in the seat that God alone deserves in our life. It's what we turn to. It's what our confidence is in. It's when, when we're shaken or rattled, it is what we turn to. It is what we seek out. Listen, if sex is an idol to you, then it will likely replace God's will for marriage in your life. It will. If that's your idol, then likely. And I believe why we see so often the, the, the rampant divorce rate is because the wrong idol is in place that drives us to the wrong relationship. And we miss God's will for marriage. If money is your idol, then your career will likely replace God's will or calling for your life. You'll be stuck there. You'll be chasing that always, always, because that's your idol and not God. When God's our idol, whatever money we have is plenty because we know it comes from him. So idolatry, you can fill in the blanks for each and every person here, but it's whatever you worship more than God. That's what it, whatever you worship more than God. Whatever, where, where do you spend your time? Where, where do you spend so many of your thoughts, your, your resources? And that likely is your idol. And your idols, John says, they'll steal your confidence. You'll have more confidence in those things than you do in God. But the second thing he says there is this, you are responsible. You see that? Guard who? Yourself. You're responsible. Not mom. Not dad, not pastor, not spouse, you're responsible. You know, we, today it's all the blame game, right? Like when you make a mistake, somebody else has to be at fault, right? It couldn't be me, right? And that's what we do. We, we blame other people, right, to excuse our own poor decisions or our own poor discretion. We, we want to put that off on someone else. John says, huh, when it comes to sin, you big boy, you young lady, right? You are responsible. And when it comes to idols in your life, God doesn't desire that there. And if they're there, it's because you chose for them to be there. So John says, so with that in mind, guard yourselves. Friends, remove those idols, recognize idols in your life, be on guard against them and get them out. Why? So that you can have confidence in Christ, that your confidence is in him and he's in you. So with that said, I hear it too often. Are you a confident Christian? Are you confident in your salvation? Are you confident in your walk with the Lord? Are you confident that God hears your prayers? 
Are you confident that God answers your prayers? John reminds us, that's why Jesus came. Because everything preceding, there was no confidence in. But the Messiah came. And you can have confidence. You can know that as a believer you're saved. You can know that as a believer he alone can forgive your sins. You can know that as a believer that God hears your prayers. You can know that as a believer that God answers your prayers. But you know what John tells us? The ball's in your court. Where are you? And have you trusted him as Savior? And have you repented of sins? And are you praying to him? And are you in his word? so you can greater understand his will.